welcome. My name is Alonda Carter and I am the Recovering Hunbot. This is season two, episode one of Hey Hun, You Woke Up. This podcast is brought to you on 10 different podcast platforms, including Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google, and Anchor. And also there is a video version on YouTube. Today I am chatting with Dr. William Keep. Dr. Keep is a former dean for the School of Business and also former interim provost and Vice President for Academic Affairs. He served as the expert witness on the Gold Unlimited case, which was found to be a pyramid scheme. Dr. Keep continues to contribute to the conversation about the problems regarding the multi-level marketing business model. So let's welcome Dr. Keep. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Kemp. I appreciate it so very much. Is it okay if I call you Bill? Yes, that's very comfortable for me. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. Perfect. Um, happy New Year to you. And so you too and your family. Here we are for 2021. And let's just see where this takes us. So you have been involved in the fight against multi-level marketing for quite some time. And if memory serves, you started out doing this and kind of like unknowingly, you kind of like step into it, fell into it when you were at the University of Kentucky. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. This is back in the mid nineties and I was a young professor there and my specialty was retailing. And um, a lawyer from the Department of Justice came to the business school and asked for some help because uh, he felt that this multi-level marketing company was actually a pyramid scheme. And I said to him, I don't know what a pyramid scheme is. Uh, And he said, well, they claim to be retailers. And I said, well, I know a fair amount about retailing. And so uh, this actually was a criminal prosecution, which uh, in my view, uh, we don't do enough of in these pyramid scheme cases. Um, But uh, the founders, a husband and wife team were found guilty. Uh, What they purported purported to be retailing is gold but it was really just an endless recruitment scheme. Uh, And in the end, just transfer as well. So um, they were convicted. uh, And in fact, uh, sort of as an aside, um, they were allowed to uh, put their personal life in order before reporting to prison, but they fled and were found like three years later um, by America's most wanted or something in a trailer park in Florida. And then they went to prison for 10 years. Wow. So that that started me. And then I got invited into a couple of state cases. I was invited into a private case between Procter & Gamble and Amway, which lasted for quite a few years. And um, what I began to learn is that, that, you know, there were some bad actors in this industry, really bad actors, and that uh, this industry, and I've called this industry a troubled industry now for more than 20 years, Uh, this industry is troubled in the lack of transparency. If we could see more, we would see more bad actors. Absolutely. Now, one of the things I want to ask you about, because those of us who create, you know, content on YouTube, we often, if we can find it, we will refer to the income disclosure statement, because that's really all that we have. And time and time again, it always shows that very few people are making a livable wage. But there's so much data that we don't have because we only can go by what we're given and they have a vast amount more that would really be helpful for this transparency as you mentioned can you talk to us a bit about that what would that look like and how could something like that happen could we ever get more data than what we have sure and it's a really good question um the earnings statement uh, that get released from multi-level market companies are by and large worthless Um, They actually don't reflect the probability of success because we don't know um, what I call um, top earner persistence. We don't know to what extent year after year it's the same people in those top categories. So if it's the same people in those top categories, whatever probability that may be suggested by the earning statements or someone might um, glean from the earning statements is, is, is wrong. And the interesting thing is, as you mentioned about data, um, earning statements um, are documents that, that are 
intended to show, though again, they're not accurate, they're intended to show earnings. Well, in order for um, a company to produce earnings statements, they have to have data on earnings. In order for them to have data on earnings, they have to have data on volume. They have to have data on multiple, on multiple months of activities and in turn, actually multiple years of activities. So the companies have a great deal of data. They know um, how, how often in a year uh, someone is active. They know to what degree they're active. They know how much they've earned, if they've earned anything at all. They know who, who's in whose downline. Um, so they have a wealth of information and they do not share it publicly. Uh, and if they wanted to, they could actually show you the actual distribution of earnings and how long it took for someone to, to earn those amounts and the, the extent to which they persisted. So for example, just because a, a participant in an MLM reaches a certain level, and when they reach a certain level, excuse me, I'm just gonna turn this off. When they reach a, a certain level, there's always a big celebration. Oh, you've reached a certain level. And there are people within this level who are uh, um, claiming to have made large income. So now you are being celebrated for having joined a group of people who uh, fit into this umbrella of claiming to have made large income. But the reality is that you may not make large income even though you're in that category, A. And the second thing is you have no idea how long other people who reach that category stayed in the category. Uh, so you could have a situation where you, you carry the label that suggests success, but you don't get the, the income checks that verify success. But none of that can be seen from earning statements or from you know, public statements made by these MLM companies. Uh, absolutely. I mean, one of the things I know I talk about a lot of times is as you quote rank up to one of those, you know, successful levels, you don't know how long someone holds it, if they're able to hold it, because I always describe it like, you know, a Jenga tower, because you're keep trying, because people are leaving and they're trying to shove somebody back in and keep everything, you know, held up and the amount of energy it takes to do that. And I would have to think that the damage it would do to the human psyche to continue to do that. The stress has got to be unimaginable, I would think, and incredibly uncomfortable. I think so. It's a, it's a very interesting sort of comparison. If you buy a lottery ticket, um, in fact, the lottery itself will often tell you the probability of success. So if you buy a lottery ticket and you don't win, you, you kind of go, well, I didn't win, right? I, I knew it was a long shot anyhow. They told me it was a long shot. They actually gave me the numbers. But here, they may be perceived to be long shots, but they seem to be within grasp. But we really don't know the real number. It's easier to know your probability of success playing the lottery or going to a casino and playing games at a, of chance at a casino than it is to know your probability of success in an MLM. And that is wearing on people. Absolutely, as does even the people who are reaching that level of success, if they don't have success the next year, then it goes back into blaming self because it can't possibly be the structure. It goes back into, you know, got to work on myself. What am I doing wrong? And it just ends up being such a, a dehumanizing dynamic, I think and so highly destructive to the personhood and not only on the individual but the family, the friends and the community at large. It, it just seems to just grow exponentially of how it can impact. Yeah, I think when you think about um, the pursuit and, and this is what's really at the heart of retention programs to keep you trying. So, so when we think about the pursuit uh, uh, and we encourage you to go get coaching or to attend events or to um, invest more or whatever. When we think about the pursuit um, and you think about the loved ones around you, you're either doing it together, you know, you, you and your 
partner have decided this, we're gonna get committed to this and we're gonna really work it, or you're doing it apart, where one partner is all enthusiastic about this pursuit and the other one isn't. In either case, when you fail, and there's a very high probability you will fail, it's not good for the relationship. It's not good for the relationship if you were striving together and failed. I mean, at least you have that sort of, I guess, consolation of having done it together, but it's still gonna be rough. And then it's gonna be rough on a, a partnership where one person was striving and the other person didn't think it was worth the effort. I mean, I've been married 48 years. Relationships take work all the time, <laughs> all 48 years, right? Uh, so these are the kinds of things that, that introduce uh, real serious stresses in relationships, family relationships, friend relationships. Um, and so social media, of course, as you know well, because you have really been able to tap into this in a, in a, in a good way, uh, social media has just expanded that reach. So now you're getting contacts from people that you were worked with or went to school with 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Or complete strangers. Or complete strangers, right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's uh, yeah, I mean, social media has really allowed everything to grow exponentially. I think it's just proliferated. But at the same time, it has let people like myself also come up and say, hey, this is a problem. This is why it's a problem. And so now they, there's the backlash of they, they cruise along for a while without anybody saying really much of anything in social media. And then, you know, it hit the fans, so to speak, I think. Right. You and, know? And the reality is that state and federal governments do not have the resources um, to go after these companies, um, even though we have evidence of them making misleading claims about their products, misleading claims about the income statements, uh, or the probability of, of earning a certain level of income. Um, the federal government um, is the most consistent in terms of successfully identifying and prosecuting MLM style pyramid schemes. There's no doubt about that. But they have a lot of other things that, that they look at at the FTC in terms of consumer fraud or, or consumer protection. They look at credit card fraud. They look at all kinds of things. So they simply don't have the resources to go out. Um, and so when, when people who have had experience um, with an MLM um, uh, come up and say, wait a minute, I, I've been inside. I, I've seen how these things operate. I've seen um, what uh, words mean or don't mean. Uh, uh, and I've seen um, uh, the company produce undecipherable documents. Documents, I mean, if you were to read what the court said about the VEMA documents, I mean, uh, VEMA was shut down, geez, I think in 16, maybe. In any case, the court was highly critical of the VEMA documents as being, you know, basically undecipherable to the average person. Um, and, and needless to say, that was intentional. And that's where all their compensation plans are. You look at them and it's like, it's so just what every time I look, I mean, I try to understand them and figure them out, but it's like, it's, they make no sense. Yeah. Anybody who's, who's, who's considering this, they should take that um, compensation plan and that comp and the earnings statement and, and ask separately three or four different top distributors, what it means. And I, and willing to bet they'll get different answers. Well, you know, most of the times, um, like myself, I know when I joined Beachbody, I didn't see an income disclosure statement. It was never even offered up to me. And I think that's also part of the problem is that people are not even given that to be able to see like what is the likelihood of success. Um, today I was watching a video and it was for Lavelle Thrive. Somebody was like talking about the opportunity and and I probably will do a reaction to it. And I'm like, my gosh, you're basically absolutely saying nothing and asking people to make a decision by your word salad, which is, and, and of course they're dead serious. I'm like, how could anybody make a, a logical decision based on this? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, a number of states over the years passed laws that said, if you signed a certain kind of consumer agreement, 
you would have three days after signing that agreement to back out because they recognize that certain um, sort of selling situations uh, dump a ton of information on people very quickly, sometimes in a sort of high pressure, you need to make a decision now kind of situation or, or here's the deal and if you don't take it now, the deal goes away or something like that. And so a number of states um, uh, took the approach of, of a sort of a three-day waiting period where you, uh, you could actually uh, um, change your mind. Um, as far as I know, that's never been applied to multi-level marketing. And I think one of the reasons is, is that multi-level marketing um, has always claimed that this is a very low cost way to own your own business. Um, well, first of all, you're not truly owning your own business in ways that we talk about business in business school. Um, and the second thing is um, that in fact, the commitment is more significant than what it initially appears to be. Um, especially if we can, if the uh, MLM can keep you trying. Keeping you trying means keeping you buying. And, 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 that, and that should be on everybody's mind. And that leads me to the next thing because typically, and these companies attempt to claim like that they're having retail sales, something outside of the network. And I've yet to hear anybody, you know, in my lifetime, talk about a product from an MLM company that... I'm at a bar, I'm at a party, I'm just hanging out with friends. It's not like, it's like, wow, this is an amazing product. It's only within that little bubble and everything within that bubble. And maybe you do have a few retail sales here and there, but it's not like you can make, you can't make a living off of just doing retail sales. There's absolutely no way. I've tried running numbers, even with Beachbody stuff. It's like what you would have to produce month after month after month. Maybe if you were a brick and mortar store, you could do that, but as an individual? Right, and, and that kind of analysis never uh, gets presented. Uh, in other words, making money by retail sales has always been part of the pattern of, of an MLM. They've always, you know, four, three ways to make money, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's always been part of it. But as you said, when you do the math on the margins, if you compared, um, the um, potential, the earnings potential from a, a, a solely uh, oriented, a recruitment oriented effort to one that was a solely uh, retail oriented effort, um, you would find that, that in the retail side, as you said, you would have to do a tremendous amount of business to beginning to equal the earning potential. So, uh, but that analysis is, is not, never provided, at least not in the situations that I've been aware of or I've seen, and that's over 20 years. Um, so you're absolutely right about that. Uh, the, that is not to say that the product um, isn't a product. In other words, some people have said, well, uh, as long as they have a product, then it can't be a pyramid scheme. Well, um, or as long as they have a product that does what it says it's gonna do. If it's a weight loss product where you lose weight, um, if it's a nutrition product, does it have the right vitamins in it, that sort of thing. And so the issue is, is this product viable in the consumer marketplace? And in the case of, of Burn Lounge, the appellate court said that although Burn Lounge representatives were buying, were purchasing this service, they, the court said there was no consumer demand. In other words, all or almost all of the purchases were related to people who wanted to pursue an opportunity. Now, when the Federal Trade Commission uh, did its investigation of Herbalife and, and brought a, a claim against Herbalife, um, they settled with Herbalife and it was a very controversial um, settlement. Um, but it does require Herbalife to document sales, uh, retail sales. Um, it's the only um, MLM company that I'm aware of that um, does that. Um, it's required to do it. Even here, though, for those of us who have been watching the industry, we're bothered by the fact that although Herbalife has to document this uh, information and give it over to a third-party monitor, it's not public. And the FTC has never released it. And um, we would like that to be public. I would think that would be very helpful because 
from what I have seen is that typically, because, you know, I know I was buying my Shakeology like a good Beachbody coach, having it on auto ship because auto ship is always like a, a general feature that you need a product every month. And, um, you know, it was really everybody, whenever there was a launch, there would be a flurry and it was all the coaches buying and, the, you know, the website would crash. And I've heard this has happened in other companies too. So the, the sale of the products is not happening really outside of the network. It's just really the people involved that, you know, continue to feed the beast, so to speak. Um, so what I wanted to ask you about in terms of, you know, product sales, and I don't know if there's the relationship to this, but I know I wanted to talk to you about it, is the um, business opportunity rule that the MLM was excluded from, which I think that if we were not have the MLM excluded from that, that would also be something else to help people to be aware of what they're actually getting into. Yeah, there is a, a federal rule called the business opportunity rule. Uh, federal agencies uh, have the capacity to generate rules. Uh, these rules go through a very long and public um, uh, process. Uh, there's a comment period, et cetera. Uh, so uh, there was a, they were gonna revise the business opportunity rule, which uh, covers all kinds of work at home kinds of opportunities. And um, they finalized it, I believe in 2012. Um, but um, prior to that, they were working through this process of revision. And there was a concerted effort by the MLM industry to get thousands, thousands of people to write in uh, to the FTC to say, uh, the MLM industry shouldn't be included in uh, this rule shouldn't be covered by the rule. And the rule had, um, you know, requirements about reporting and a, a degree of transparency that we do not see in the MLM industry. And what I um, was, was particularly irritated by was um, there's actually a footnote, footnote 124 in the Federal Register document that is the, uh, that talks about the revision of the rule that said that the FTC concluded that the benefits of including the uh, MLM industry under the rule would uh, not outweigh the costs that would impose on the industry. So basically the industry convinced the Federal Trade Commission that you're, making us, you're gonna make us do all this work and it's not gonna bring what you want because we're already doing a good job and the FTC let them off the hook. Um, I think it was a serious uh, error on the part of the FTC uh, and I think that um, had uh, the FTC not let them off the hook, we would be in a very different spot with the industry right now. The FTC even recognized that there was a concerted effort by the industry. In other words, it's kind of like getting thousands of postcards and they all say the same thing on them. <laughs> the FTC knew that there was a writing campaign in the industry to shape the outcome and the FTC fell for it. Is there anything that we could do now that would um, get them to include multi-level marketing? Well, I think first of all, um, the average person I think doesn't think, I'm gonna to go to the Federal Trade Commission and complain. They'll complain to their neighbor, their mother, their sister, their brother, whomever, but they're not gonna go to the Federal Trade Commission and complain. They should do that. Um, it, there's an online form you can complete. Um, and unfortunately, and there's a whole literature on complaint behavior. Unfortunately, we would rather um, walk away from a bad situation, grumbling to ourselves and others, um, than um, complain. And in the industry, the multi level marketing industry has been very um, clever in um, positioning failure as something that, as you said earlier, not part of the structure, but part of your own failed effort. And so um, people who succeed, succeed because of their efforts and people who fail, fail because of their efforts. I actually don't believe that that's generally true in multi-level marketing. I believe that there's a lot that we can't see um, that is going on in terms of, as you said, your Jenga um, kind of comparison. Um, I think uh, downlines are created in a certain way. 
Um, and obviously there's also the thing about adding family members in. Um, so I think there's a lot of bothersome behaviors that go into constructing and maintaining downlines that help to create the wealth that's used as the examples. Um, so, um, so if people did not blame themselves for their lack of success, would they be more upset? And would they then go to the FTC? And, and I would hope both of those things would be true. If you stop blaming yourself, right? I mean, look, we're human beings. Um, it's very natural when something doesn't go right just to, to, to say, oh, maybe I didn't do it right, right? Um, and when you're in an industry that's is more than willing to say, yeah, it was you, you didn't do it right, um, then that just kind of reinforces it. Uh, we all make mistakes, uh, you know, and it doesn't really matter whether you're a college professor or, you know, uh, you know, one time I was a mailman before I ended. It doesn't matter if you're a mailman or a college professor or a factory worker or whatever. And I've done all those jobs. The reality is that we all make mistakes. Um, but there are certain statements that get made in the industry that these statements can't all be true. Anybody can do this, um, but, but not you. Right. Right. Because you failed. Right. Um, so there's a lot of contradictions when you like listen to the words. Um, there's a lot of contradictions. But to go back to your main point, we need to document complaints. And the best way to do it is with the Federal Trade Commission, even though I'm unhappy with them on some things. <laughs> And I do my best to encourage people all the time. I did make a video and I showed them like, this is where you go. This is how you do it. Because it's, it's really our voices. And I think it's our voices this year during the pandemic where now 16 companies, you know, got letters because people were making, you know, false income claims and also about like how it could boost your immunity and all this sort of a whatnot. And uh, Market America, was, it was all income claims. And I, can't, I think it was like over 400 of both JR and all the distributors. I mean, it's just like really... A lot. And on top of that, we now have Operation Income Illusion that is in, in place where the FTC has teamed up with different law enforcement because of the amount of scams, because people are so vulnerable right now, because that's when they get you. You know, the opportunity slithers into the, your world right. when you're at a very vulnerable spot in your life. And right now? Yep. And, and let me just uh, add one more thing. Some people just prefer not to deal with the government for whatever reason, okay? Uh, you know, they think the government's bloated or they think the government isn't very effective or whatever, it's fine. Um, then I would say go to truthinadvertising.org, tina.org, T-I-N-A.org. They will take your complaint. They are a nonprofit. They just finished their eighth year in operation. They've been very successful in bringing forward issues. Now they handle a lot of different kinds of issues in terms of truth and advertising. It's certainly not just multi-level marketing. Multi-level marketing is probably 10 or some percent of what they do, some smallish percent of what they do. But even in that area, they've been effective. They've, uh, in other areas, they've been effective going after influencers who don't reveal that they're getting paid to do and say what they're paying, they're doing and saying. They've been effective at going after companies that claim that we sell made in America products and, and come to find out they actually weren't made in America. You're just using that label because it makes people feel all warm and fuzzy about your product. So uh, tina.org is a really good alternative if you prefer not to go to the FTC. Um, and they've got, it's a small efficient operation with a small group of really smart lawyers. Now, I refer to their information all the time. I've included that in videos, but I've never thought about, you know, telling people to go there too. So thank you very much for that, because I think that's very important. The more that we are, our voices are heard, the more that we put it out there, I think sooner or later, the government will have to listen, but, you know, we have to keep on bringing it up. We can't just, you know, go slink into that good night. And I know there's a lot of shame associated with multi-level marketing and people just really want to put it behind things. It's like, oh, they're just horrified by what they did. And I think about some of the things that I did. I'm like, it's so embarrassing. I mean, it's utterly just like, I cannot believe it. And 
and yet I did. But at the same time, I also know if I don't share my story and I don't talk about what I did, then other people may not talk about theirs. And so that's, I'm willing to share my warts in hopes that it will help somebody else, you know, do the same thing. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know what our, our parents collectively did to us when we were all young, or maybe it's just a natural human reaction, but we don't like to be embarrassed. We don't like, and in, in, in fact, some of the things that you will remember the longest, you know, years and years and years is when you were embarrassed. I mean, I've had students that I haven't had for 20 years say, remember Professor Keep when I did this dumb mistake? I mean, it was, it's, it sticks with you. Um, but, you know, we got to put on our big boy and big girl pants and we need to say, look, um, there may be something wrong here and I may be able to actually help. Um, and when you do it that way, um, you begin to realize that um, you do have a voice to say. And in fact, um, you know, when the FTC, I would encourage everyone to read FTC complaints about some of these companies, whether it's Vima or Herbalife or Burn Lounge or uh, Advocare, just read one of them and you won't be embarrassed anymore. That's great advice because yeah, there, there's, there's so many stories out there of people have gone through exactly what people who are watching us now and they're going, they're, they're, they're feeling alone, but they, they've been through that exact same thing or something worse. And that knowing that it's not you and you're not alone. I think there's a lot of power in that. And that helps to start the healing process. Although I think the healing process is very slow. I think there's a lot of psychological damage that it's done and people walk around with this after right. they've been through the ringer. And especially if you've done it for many years or you bounce from one opportunity to another, it just reinforces itself. Um, it's, you know, I'm still triggered by stuff. I, I catch myself all the time because I'm carrying that with me. But at the same time, I do know, um, it's okay to have those feelings. And every now and then I catch myself where I, I feel that I am still responsible for my failure, even though I know better logically, but it's like that emotion that's, you know, within you. Well, I think part of it is because it's asking for such a, a personal commitment. I mean, you know, the reality is the vast majority of people who get involved in multi-level marketing uh, will make no income or very little income. And by the time you would calculate the expenses, uh, they would be negative. Um, and so um, that's a big group and a big percentage, right? Um, but for, even for what's sometimes just said a part-time job, people don't feel like this is a part-time job. If you go get a part-time job, I don't know, go, you, you, you know, you get a job, um, hosting at a restaurant three days a week, or I don't know, you just make up any part-time job, right? Well, you go to your job, you get your paycheck, and you go home. That's it, right? You want to do a good job, you, you know, you're, you're the best darn hostess those three days, or whatever, um, and then you, you go home and you get a paycheck. That's not what they're asking of you in MLM. They're asking of you a much more significant commitment, emotional commitment, um, and uh, so they, you know, they, they dangle that sort of golden ring out there. Um, the people speaking from the stage or, or, or in some of the videos that get shared on social media, et cetera. And so all of a sudden you're seeing, oh, this isn't a job where I go three days a week and I get a paycheck. This could be, could be something more. And then you never know what the true probability is of it being something more. Well, I'd also say the social aspect of it too, of saying, you know, sisterhood, family, because family is used a lot, like we're a family. And so that, that's, that's a hook right there. That's an emotional hook and a commitment right there. Cause you don't want to turn your back on family, you know? And so I, I actually, because of, I have a reputation in this, of being an industry critic, I actually have had friends and family members come to me and say, what do you think? <laughs> like, so we have to have a conversation about that. But yeah, it's uh, needless to say, no one tries to recruit me into MLM. 
Um, but I do have friends and family that, that have been, you know, recruited. Um, and so it's, it, it, it's, 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 you know, sometimes I kind of chuckle about it, but it's not funny. Um, you know, the, the capitalization on personal relationships um, uh, that turn out by and large, overwhelmingly negative. And I think something that really disturbs me because it, it comes from some of the comments I get because people perceive it as like, well, we're just having fun. We're just getting together and we're doing this fun. We enjoy it. But at the same time, those are the people that don't realize that there's this darkness underneath that's really kind of taking over. It what might feel good because, you know, family, you get together, it's a community and you have all this rah, 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 but it's all an illusion. It's, it's, it's not based in reality, but it feels like it is. And so you're like, you're like swayed into this where you think the fantasy is reality and the reality is fantasy. It's a very interesting thing because what happens because of the emotional, for lack of a better word, high, emotional gratification of, of being uh, with people you enjoy being with, laughing about things, sharing things, that sort of stuff. And by the way, there has been a tradition years and years ago, um, single level direct sign, not multi-level, of the party plan. Mm-hmm. And people would get together, maybe they'd have a glass of wine, uh, and, and then they would demonstrate the products, or they would share and show stories. And, you know, I know, I, I think we have a couple of of, of, of kitchen products that we ended up going from one of these party plan type events for, you know, that a, a friend hosted. Um, so the, so this notion of social selling, so to speak, um, goes back a long time. And as long as people walk away and feel, yeah, hey, it was a good time. And, you know, I got a, I don't know, a pizza stone or something out of the deal, whatever. Um, but, um, but when you, when the down is, comes when you look at your bank account, you look at your checkbook, your credit card, then it becomes very real. Yeah. Um, and <clears throat> but yet you have to where... project that success, even though, and I'm seeing this, and I told you earlier before we, <clears throat> excuse me, before I hit record, that I've been looking into the Shannon Watts case and you know they had already filed bankruptcy once and right before her death, I mean, they were already in debt again. And she was involved in so many different MLMs over time. And I know that that, that impacted that family. It, could, I, it just, there's no way you can tell me that it didn't because of having been through it myself, but I see that in her of what the lifestyle that, that she continued to project. Yeah. But yet, meanwhile, it's like what's happening behind closed doors totally totally different and it's so it's it's right it's so sad when i when i see these people that i know what they're projecting i'm like but what is really going on what's really happening that's right we've seen the same thing when um you know if you look at periods of economic recessions so if you imagine a, a family that was doing really well before the recession and then um the recession came and perhaps one of them lost their job or something changed or whatever. Um, they're sort of still striving to maintain that um, social position, um, uh, to maintain the appearances. Um, and, 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 and often they'll like dig into their credit cards to, to maintain that. And we all know, we all know, credit cards are a very expensive way to borrow money. Absolutely. <clears throat> Excuse me. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, because I, you sent out a paper this past, I think it was this past week, yeah. and it was a paper that you and Peter, and I'm not going to get the last name right, but it's Thank a, you. Thank you. It's, um, if that model were applied, that would help us be able to identify, um, I think when you said the, the retail sales or can, can you kind of go over that, over all that model? Because I think that this is sure. a very important piece that people need to know about. So I consider to be, um, I consider Dr. Peter Vandernet to be the foremost world expert on Ponzi and pyramid schemes. Um, he has been recognized internationally. Um, he worked for the Federal Trade Commission for over 20 years. He's now retired. 
Um, and I met him in the late 90s at a meeting, a conference. Like, and um, I liked him. So we started talking. And in 2002, uh, we um, published a paper in the Journal of Public Policy and Marketing where we presented a math model. Now, uh, full credit to Peter for developing the model. He and I talked about the um, uh, case, uh, the history of pyramid scheme cases and what did they mean? And then he was able to translate that into the model. And, and so that uh, a, a company that sort of failed in the model would be consistent with companies that have been found to be pyramid schemes. So, you know, one of the things we want to know is, is this a model, is, is the business operation compensating you for what kinds of activities? What kind of activities are you being compensated for, right? And so this model sorts out your compensation sources. Um, so some, one source of your compensation is um, volume generated by your downline, right? Another source of compensation is uh, products that you sell to people who are not part of the distribution network. Um, not only do you make a retail commission, but in fact, you're getting some um, earnings by the volume generated by those retail sales. And then of course you have your own volume. So if we could look at that and we could sort that out and all of that data is available with the exception of sales to um, end users or consumers outside the distribution network. As far as I know, most companies do not collect that. Herbalife has to collect that now because of their agreement with the FTC. So Peter and I had that published, that was 18 years ago. And we did not publish it and say, um, this is you know, the end all and be all, but we said, this is a way, a way to look at multi-level marketing and illegal pyramid schemes. Now, I'm not aware of any case where a multi-level marketing company has been found to be a pyramid scheme that is inconsistent with the model. And basically what the model does is uh, it rewards in a sense, the company, it, puts the company in a positive light if the distributors uh, distribution or compensations rely primarily on purchases made by customers outside the distribution network, right? And so um, uh, the, the model doesn't say you're a pyramid scheme, you're not a pyramid scheme, but what it says is um, companies where, the, what I just described is less true, companies where compensation is not related very much to sales outside. Those companies mathematically look a lot like companies who have found to be pyramid schemes and they weren't a look. And so that's been our position. Um, sure, I mean, I, I feel like it's, it's it, the model's held up well. Um, I think it should be used. Um, I think it should be understood um, by um, state prosecutors as well as federal prosecutors. Um, certainly within the FTC, they are aware of it because we developed it while Peter was working there. Um, uh, and I think it would be very helpful. Uh, the industry hates it. And <laughs> I bet. So in the industry, the interesting thing is that the, the most significant appellate case, uh, the most recent significant appellate case is Burn Lounge. And in Burn Lounge, when they appealed, when Burn Lounge appealed the lower court, decision, part of their appeal was that Peter Vandernat, who was the FTC's expert in Burn Lounge, misapplied the analysis. He, he did not apply the right analysis. So the appeal court had to actually look at how did the FTC analyze this company? And what did they come out with? They spent the last four pages of their complaint verifying that the FTC and Peter Vandernat did the right thing. So we know this can work. We know the view that this can work. Um, and so the, the interesting thing is if uh, the industry has fought very hard against any kind of conversation about this and uses their political ties to try to advance their agenda and to try to protect themselves. Just like lots of other industries do too, by the way. Well, yeah, you gotta protect, you know, what's feeding you, so to speak. Now, I want to kind of wrap this up because this is something, and I know you've heard this 
a lot. It is a classic thing that you hear from a distributor is that, you know, uh, working for a company, a corporation, a university or whatever, that's the real pyramid scheme. That's the pyramid scheme. We're not that. We have this product and life is dandy over here. <laughs> right. Well, I think that, you know, they, they think they get some credibility out of that because people at the top make more money than people at the bottom. And you have to work your way up in, in a career, right? Even in a professor, you come in as an assistant professor and then you become an associate professor and you can become a, a full professor. Um, if you go into administration, I became a dean and then I was asked to be the interim provost for a couple of years. So we know organizations are hierarchical. Um, private organizations are hierarchical. And if you ever read an article about um, that companies are flat and they don't have hierarchies and everything, um, don't believe it. They, they, the companies rely on hierarchy because that's how they reward people who do who make exceptional contributions. Now, first of all, I'm a real critic at how much CEOs get paid right now. So let me just put that right out there. So whatever this pyramid scheme, this pyramid uh, uh, structure looks like, um, uh, I think we are in a period of, we've been in a period, a historical period where a CEO compensation is way out of line. Um, but it is a hierarchy. Um, a hospital is a hierarchy. You name it, you're going to find a hierarchy. An orchestra can be a hierarchy. You know, you have the first chair trumpeter and you have the third chair trumpeter. I mean, we see these things everywhere. But the, the MLM people who think they're being clever by saying that, that, you know, the real world, that's a pyramid. All they're doing is uh, trying to leverage this organizational hierarchy structure to say that's the real problem but that isn't the real problem i mean it can be a problem and you know but the real problem is uh, when you can make a comparison between mlm if we look at income inequality the unequal income made in the private sector in the payroll sector of the united states non-government payroll sector of the united states income earned there is far less unequal than income distribution in an MLM. So the irony here is they're trying to deflect the fact that the MLM rewards people more unevenly, more unevenly than just going out and getting a job and working inside of a hierarchical organization. And so the, uh, it's a shame. Um, and, you know, people can take like any example and say, this is like that. And you hear it all the time. Mm -hmm. um, but the reality is that um, in many cases, um, the reward um, structure that you see in an MLM, if, if that was applied at the United States level, we would be swamped with poor people. Oh my gosh, the poverty level would be astronomical. I mean... There'd be homeless everywhere because, I mean, even just going off of the income disclosure statements, when I've calculated, it's like you're making far less than minimum wage. You're making pennies per hour of the amount of time that you put into this. Because as you said earlier, there's this illusion, you know, like, oh, you don't have to spend that much time. But the fact is people spend far more time trying to make it work than they do with a regular job. Right. I, I, you know, I've been a professor a long time now, and I really like my job. I like working with, with uh, people, you know, who come and take classes and things like that. Young people and old people. We only have a few things. We have time, we have talent, and we have some money and some energy. That's it, right? And so we're going to make decisions about how to apply that. Now, I would much rather see a person at any age take their talent and their time and their energy and apply it to something where you can see a payoff. And if you did it even better or more, you would see more of a payoff. This relationship between effort and payoff. When we look at the MLM industry overall, that relationship seems broken. It seems, uh, it seems as if it's missing some links it's because we have people putting energy and, and talent and time and money uh, into an effort and they're not seeing a reward. 
Yeah. So uh, I would much rather, uh, I, I, you know, I come from a working class family who worked with my wife really hard to get through college, et cetera, like that. Um, so now I'm, you know, towards in my career and, and, and things are, are, are whatever they're going to be. And then, you know, I'm happy, happy to have a good career. But for many years, like many young couples, my wife and I were struggling to make sure we got the bills paid. You're looking at your monthly budget. You're looking at your credit card debt. You're looking at whether or not your car needs to repair. We've done that. Um, and so if I'm trying to move away from that kind or, or of, of lifestyle, a little bit more financial secure, a little bit more opportunities, I want people to focus their efforts on things where they can see a reward. Um, not where things where the, the reward seems to be just outside their grasp. And if they just work a little bit harder, just a little bit harder, a little right. bit more time. Yeah, I agree. Well, thank you so very much for your time. Um, I'm going to like wrap this up right now and then talk to you a little bit before, you know, you. but so just thank you so much. I really appreciate you. I appreciate the time. invitation. And I'm happy to, you know, talk about these issues because, uh, uh, they need talking about, and they're not going to go away in the short run. No, they're not. And I'm sure I'll be tapping you on the shoulder again saying, hey, will you come back and talk some more? Because, you know, it's always so fascinating for me to talk to um, someone who has been doing this for so long. You have so much knowledge in this. And I thank you so much for, you know, having set the pace, so to speak, and being willing to, you know, share your knowledge with me. Bill, thank you so very much for your time. If you would like to see some of his most recent work, there are some articles over on Seeking Alpha. It is seekingalpha.com. And then just type William Keep in the search bar. Happy reading. And remember, you are beautiful and I love you.